our Bibles. I want to have you take your Bibles and turn me to Titus chapter 1. As you know that when Dan is not able to be here, we're also working through Titus. And uh, on a side note, I will say this. Dan made sure that I heard from him this morning from Lima, Peru. Right, Jane? Um, he's in Lima right now, ministering there, and um, just wants to make sure you know of his love for you and wishes he, he was here this morning. Um, so continue to pray for Dan as he'll be uh, going to, what's that, Honduras? Honduras later sometime this week, and, uh, and uh, then he'll be back with us two weeks from today. So I'll just be praying for his travels there. But uh, as, we, as he's gone, we're going to be working our way through Titus, and it's a very applicable to where we're at as a church replant uh, in uh, putting in order things and uh, aligning things so that they are according to the word of God. And so we come to Titus chapter one this morning, and I want to pick us up in verse five. And I have to tell you now, we're not going to finish all of it this morning. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, I broke it into about five or six weeks. Uh, we won't take that long to move our way through these, but we'll take two weeks to move ourselves through this very important passage that really begins and sets the foundation for Titus's ministry in Crete, but also as it's applicable to us in Bardstown, as we plant a church, as we replant this church and lay it on a course for gospel success, according to what God has for us. In Titus chapter 1, if you want to follow along in verse 5, we'll begin. For this reason... I left you in Crete that you should set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, that if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Until a person is placed into leadership within the church, there is often very little understanding of the sadness, of the sin, and really of the despair among the people for whom God has made him responsible. Within the walls of the church, to be really honest with you, most lives are pretty messy. They're distraught with sin, suffering, Tragedy, loss, hopelessness in many cases, and despair. Behind the Sunday morning smiles lies incredible burden. There are dissatisfied and marriages. There are men and women who are enslaved to their own lust. There is our addictions. There are sinful thought patterns and a full gamut of things that are not honoring and are difficult. 
Many, I would even say even this morning, are here this morning who are weighed down with hopeless feelings, accompanied by a, a sense of failure in so many ways. Failure to gain victory over sin, failures in their own walk with their life or with their with their with the Lord. Some are distraught because they are in endless pursuit of satisfaction in power and money and material things. And every time it has ended up a hopeless situation. What do such desperate people in the church need most? Our text this morning points them to this, and that is a godly leadership. That's what they need. They need a godly leadership that shows them the one, that is Christ, who lives in, in, in and believes in the one whom they believe in is so much more powerful, so much greater than he who lives in the world. And they need someone to point them there. That's why God gives leaders to the church. That's why God has ordained that there would be men who would lead the church in that fashion, according to his word. A godly leadership in the church demonstrates, you see, to people that the gospel does indeed transform lives. That, they, that a godly leadership means that you can look to them and say, listen, there is, in all of the despair, in all of the hopelessness, there is hope in Christ. As it's modeled by and taught by and demonstrated by transformed lives of leadership. A godly leadership leads the flock ultimately to the chief shepherd. You remember Paul who said in Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? It's the power of God. It's not just the power of God just to kind of forgive your sins and let you live in that way. It's the power of God to what? To completely transform the life from a life of hopeless enslavement to sin, and now to a life empowered by the Spirit of God, equipped with the Word of God, to live godly lives that are satisfying to the glory of Christ. That's what he says in Romans 6, 5. He says, For if we have been united with Him, that is Christ, in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So that we would no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has freed us from sin. And that's what leaders do, right? Godly leaders do. Men who meet the qualifications that God has laid forth, as we're going to see here in Titus and even in Timothy. They bring hope to those who follow them as their lives are different and there is hope that my life could be different too. For leadership in the church, godliness is not just a personal thing, it is a ministry. And if you want to be a leader, whether it be in your home, a leader in the church, a leader in the community, a leader wherever, it's not just something that you practice so that it's for your own personal benefit. But it is a ministry to others in your family, in your church, and everything. That is the ministry to which God has called us. Particularly you men in the church. Godliness brings a personal blessing. But it is also a blessing. 
Uh, you might say uh, this is a gift. Godly leadership is a gift that delivers hope to those who are suffering, to those who are persecuted, to those who are in despair and hopeless because they see the transforming power of the gospel in your life and know that that can be true in theirs. And so godly leaders, their life is a message of hope. I, I often call it a gift of grace to the church. It's the dawning of blessings to those, to the whole church. It's kind of like the morning sunrise that brings that first glimpse of light. That's what a godly leadership is to the church. And now, in crossing, or whatever church, is a time for men to be those kind of men. So we just read in Titus, that's going to be the focus of our study this week and next. Because this is important for us because in just a matter of a few weeks, we will be affirming several men to the office of elder. A serious position, a position that we need to know what it is. And it's by, not by, by happenstance that we come here. God has brought this passage right where we're not picking and choosing the passage. It's the next one in there. But at Crossing Church, there must be these kind of men. Paul knows that if the churches in Crete are to succeed, they will need a godly leadership. We know that. I mean, look at churches today. You've all been know what this is. Poor leadership. And by poor leadership, I mean an ungodly leadership leads to weak and confused and powerless churches. They might be big. They might be fancy. They might have money. They might have all of the things that look great. But in the end, when they stand before God on judgment day, there are very little that stands. Most is hay, wood, and stubble and burned up. Godly leadership leads to effectiveness, to a sound church, strong churches that honor Christ. So in Crete, Paul leaves Titus. He leaves Titus behind, and, and in verse 5, we see this twofold purpose. He says, for this reason, I left you in Crete. This is Paul speaking to Titus. He says that you would, number one, set in order what remains, and number two, appoint elders in every city as I directed you. At some point, we don't know exactly when, but Paul had, and Titus had traveled to Crete. It's that small little island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's not small by you know, the standards of an island in the Mediterranean. It's one of the largest islands there. But they go through the whole island, and they're preaching the gospel, and people are converted to Christ. And after a number of weeks and months, Paul says, I'm, I need to move on. And yet to his faithful companion, Titus, he says, Titus, you will stay here in Crete. The gospel has begun to take roots, and now there must be someone who will finish the missionary work, if you want to say that, there in Crete that Paul has begun. And so he leaves behind his cohort in ministry to a faithful man named Titus. And Titus is to do what? Set in order what remains. Titus was called upon to, to set things straight is kind of the idea here. 
It's kind of a chaotic mess going on. And you can see Paul, he's just preaching. People are being converted. Titus is preaching and people are being converted. And yet there's no organization. There's no real administrative organization to all of this. And so how, what do we do, Paul? And I think that's what he means here by set in order. Organize, direct, guide. Bring counsel when the counsel is needed. Correct those churches that are beginning already even to go off so they stay on a solid foundation. And they didn't, they didn't have any kind of organization at this point. There was no elders. There were no leaders. It was, it was almost a sense of just a total anarchy in the church. What a, what a difficult task. I mean, you think of young Titus. He's got a difficult task, task to do. In chapter 1, verse 10, we know that he's going to have to deal with rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, and Jewish false teachers. That's his first order of business. i got to set an order. i got to go deal with these false teachers that are teaching some kind of Jewish legalism. In chapter 2, verse 1, he's got to clarify some sound doctrinal issues. I mean, that, that's a hard place to be. you got a bunch of people that are new believers, and they think they already know all the theology they need to know. Chapter 3, verse 9. There's all kinds of issues over doctrine. In chapter 3, verse 10, there's factions happening. There's divisions already in the church. You've got men coming in and being factious. And he's got to know how to deal with them. And so Titus was to strengthen the church's resolve against false teaching. To create sound doctrine. To correct error. To expel a controversial men. Men who like division instead of unity. But that was only part of his task. And our focus this morning is on this second task, as that is to appoint elders in every city. Titus was to ordain, if you want to use that good word. He was to set into office men in every church that would give lasting and a godly leadership to these churches. And we need to ask ourselves this, because this is very applicable to us right now where we're at. We're about to set in order, as we've been doing, and now we're about to affirm men to the office in just a few weeks of elders. And there's some questions we need to begin to ask. Who were these elders? What were they to be like? How are they to function? What is their role? Is an elder simply someone who just serves in the church at whatever needs to be done? By what means did Titus pick them? How did Titus pick them? Well, these are just some of the questions that we need to begin to answer this week and next week. And I, to be honest, I just want to kind of begin to jump right in. Because I believe it's, and as I do, I would need to give some overview, if I may, of the entire New Testament. Because we don't want to just come in here and say this is all there is to say. The New Testament has several things to say, numerous things to say, about who it is to lead and how they're to lead and what they do in the church concerning elders. Concerning who these godly men are to be and what is a godly man. So let me give you, if I may, a simple outline that summarizes really the New Testament teaching on eldership. 
I want to give this by way of introduction. I'll be honest with you. This morning is more introduction. Next week, we're going to get into some of the nitty gritty of the text of the qualifications of an elder. And I'm just going to use this, this little phrase. It's simple for you to write down and take notes. Elders are, and then you fill in the blank. It'll be that easy. So number one, elders are pastors. Elders are pastors and overseers, you could also put. Pastors are elders. I put pastors are elders backslash because we're in a new age now of technology. Overseers. The New Testament has three terms for this office. This office of what these men are called in the church. There are overseers. You've heard the word Episcopal church, right? The word Episcopos is the word and that we translate overseer if you have the King James, it might say bishop. That's where the word bishop in, in the Roman Catholic Church comes from. It's this word of someone who is an overseer, mostly translated in our New American Standard and NASB, or New English Version. Okay? The second word is pastor, poimen. It's a Greek word. I don't usually give you Greek words because I don't really think you need to know them, per se. But I want you to hear that. Pastor is poimen. You can see we're kind of translated that way. And thirdly, there is the word elder, and that comes from the word presbyteros. You've ever heard of the Presbyterians, right? Uh, it's an elder-ruled church or an elder-run church. Now, that has long since been abolished in some ways, in some manifestations, but that's where originally it came from. We're going to be a church led by the, uh, the presbyteros, the elders. We see this used throughout the New Testament. Even in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul uses the word presbyteros when he says elders. He says, you are to appoint elders. In verse 5, he also uses overseers, the episcopos. In the same verse, referring to the same man, he uses episcopos and presbyteros. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we won't turn there right now, but in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you're familiar with your Bible, that's the other big key passage where it's almost a, a, a similar passage where Paul lists the qualifications for this office. They're very similar. First Timothy chapter 3, Paul calls them overseers then must be this kind of people. Listing the qualifications. In First Peter chapter 5, Peter calls, he uses all three of the terms. It's interesting. In First Peter chapter 5, referring to these shepherds, he says, and if I can get my pages to turn there, 1 Peter 5, chapter, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore I exalt the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, giving oversight or exercising oversight. That's who these men are. They are overseers, pastor, shepherd, same thing. Pastor is somebody, just a, another word for shepherd. An elder. Even in Acts chapter 20, Paul uses those three terms again. When he calls for the elders of Ephesus to come and to meet him in Miletus, he calls them shepherds, elders, and overseers. Now, why three different words? Why three different words? Overseer. Well, here's why. Overseer, when Paul wants to emphasize their function, they oversee. This is referring to what the men do. 
The word elder emphasizes their character, who the man is, and his care for the flock. And number, excuse me, number, number two is elder, his character. Number three is pastor and how he does it. How he does it. What the man does, overseer, an elder is who the man is, and a pastor or shepherd is how he does it, by caring and feeding for the flock. And what we see in the New Testament is these words are all used interchangeably, all referring to the same leadership, the same men. And so that is to say this, all elders are pastors. All pastors are, what, overseers. They all are given care to pastor, oversee, and elder the church. They have the same qualifications, whether you're an elder, pastor, overseer, or whatever you want to call it. They have the same responsibility. They have the same character and qualifications, as I said. They have, they, their giftedness may be different, very different. But all elders equally will hold responsibility before God for the church that is given to their charge. That means that to a level, there are no divisions between staff and lay elders on issues of authority and accountability. Okay? A staff pastor will not stand before the God and incur a stricter judgment than those who are lay. They're all equally responsible. This leads to our second statement concerning the elders. Verse 1. Second one is elders are a plurality. A plurality. Pastoral ministry is not for senior pastors and just a few guys that they hire to be their staff. Like many things in life, it requires a team effort. And the Bible portrays church leadership always to be a plurality. And by plurality, we mean, mean men equally serving in authority. That doesn't mean they don't have different roles. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be some that are, and we'll talk about this more, that are some that are going to be more prominent because of their function and their giftedness. But they are all equal, and they are plurality. The use of elders... That word, elders, in the, is always in the plural in the New Testament. Unless he, Paul is speaking, and we know specifically, to a specific elder. But whenever he talks about the church and its leadership, it is always used in a plural form. The only time it is used in the singular is speaking particularly to John or Peter as an elder. I want to show you this, if I may. Just a couple of places in Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, verse 23. When they had appointed, and this is speaking about Paul and Barnabas had been preaching the gospel, and they were starting churches and planting churches. And when they appointed what? Elders. It doesn't say when they appointed an elder or when they appointed one guy to kind of lead the charge. Or to be the senior pastor. It says when they appointed elders, plural, 
Again, in Acts chapter 20, you remember when Paul is in, in Miletus and he's on his way to Rome for, his, for his, uh, uh, his court hearing, if you want to call it that. He says, call the men from Ephesus to meet me in Miletus so I can encourage them and call them to be careful. He says he calls the elders of the church of Ephesus. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul lists the overseers, plural, in Philippi in his greeting. Our passage in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, Paul ex or Peter exhorts the elders. James chapter 5, verse 14. He calls the elders to, uh, to do a ministry of prayer for the sick. Call the elders. And it's important for us to understand then that the church is to be led by a collective of godly men. A plurality. Not just by one CEO. Not the one who is called this or that, but a shared responsibility. And there's a reason for this. There's a reason for this. It's pretty, pretty sensitive. It makes pretty much sense. It balances individuals. It takes the weaknesses of one and, and in a sense, erases them as the other fills the gap. All men have incredible weaknesses. And where one is weak, another becomes strong. We all have blind spots, don't we? And so the others are able to come in and to reveal to that other one who has blind spots his blindness. And vice versa among them. America is, is, a, a, is kind of the, the rugged individualism. Well, that is a, an American phenomenon. That is not a biblical one. The Bible is very clear that we need a plurality of godly men. The church is, is a multiple of people gathering together as one. And everyone. We need one another. And leadership is no different. Also, the reason there's a plurality, I believe, is because it lightens the burden. As the church grows, the burdens multiply. Tenfold, a hundredfold, a thousandfold if the church continues to grow. And nor can one man possibly shepherd and pastor and administrate all of that. There's far too much counseling, far too much teaching that needs to occur, preaching, correction, watching out for false teaching and those who would come in and destroy. I think also it provides accountability. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power what? Corrupts absolutely. And so if one man has all the power, he's corrupt very quickly. The idea that one man would control the church is contrary to what the scriptures say. Shared, brotherly leadership restrains pride. It holds back the tide of greed and self-idolatry. And so a plurality of elders is God's plan to safeguard his bride, the church, right? That's how God keeps his bride safe through a plurality of godly men. You know, there's a negative side to it, only because we live in a sinful, fallen world. There's a negative. Things in the church are horribly slow to get done, aren't they? Because you've got now two, three, four, five, six, whatever men trying to come to an agreement on something. And that takes a long time. 
I mean, listen, you want something done, ask one person to do it. Ask two people, and now it takes twice as long. Ask three, it takes three times as long. Five, five times as long. Right? You know that. If you've been married for any length of time, you know it was really easy when you were single to get something done. You got married, what? Now it takes forever. Okay? And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. Because when you were single, as if you were anything like me, you made a lot of stupid decisions. Okay? And now you have somebody to balance that out and to help you in wise decisions. Well, the second question, and I, I just want to go on this a little bit. I don't want to take too long. How does this plurality work when you have pastorals and pastoral staff and those who are lay? Well, Timothy begins to answer that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, when he says this. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. The, the, the scriptures begin to show that there are differences of function. Not differences in equality. That wouldn't be equal. While they are equal, there are going to be by natural giftedness, by natural ability, there are going to be some who kind of get to the forefront. There are going to be some on a council of equals. There is going to be some that rise up. Sometimes they, they refer to this as a leader among equals. Because leadership and direction and vision, not without accountability, not without others, the other men coming as full equals around him. I mean, look at the apostles, right? Who led the 12 apostles? Jesus, obviously. Who was next? Peter. It's Peter. Peter is the kind of the leader of the 12 apostles. Jesus spends more time with Peter, and even within Peter, there's kind of a structure. You have the other ones, you have Peter, James, and John, and sometimes Andrew are kind of the top four. And Jesus, you see more about them. You can't, if you name all of the 12 apostles, so probably most of us can't name all 12 apostles. Because there's very little written about some of them. And we can infer then, we can look at the scriptures and go, because Peter, man, he's, he's right out in front. Of course, he's got his foot in his mouth half the time. Right? He's the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth. Uh, but he's a natural leader. James. James was an apostle. He also becomes what? According to Acts 12 and then Acts 15, he's what? He's the kind of the lead elder or what we might say today, a senior pastor in the church in Jerusalem. Same authority, same responsibility, same accountability. Differing roles. Differing roles. Let me give you a third one if you're taking notes. Elders are, this is a pretty simple one, elders are men. I've been saying that throughout this whole this morning, but let me just make that very clear. Elders are men. And, and I'll be honest, this is a sensitive subject. This is the most objectionable concept of biblical eldership that we have probably today. Even... This last week, uh, my wife, I didn't get to listen to it all. Even Al Mohler made some comments on this. I thought that were very applicable. And in our contemporary culture, the exclusion of women from church leadership is considered sexist, discriminatory, and another example of men trying to hold down women. But that is not to be the case for church leadership with an all-male Elders, pastors, shepherds. And I want to be very sensitive here because 
It is true for centuries since Adam and Eve, women have suffered greatly and still do in a world where men have dominated in leadership. And even in churches, churches, men often fail in shepherding the church of Christ in the way that Christ would shepherd when it comes to women. They have. But God, in his word, has laid out a plan. And, and if the Bible is what we say is our final authority, then that is what we have to go to. And so anytime there is discrimination, any kind of, there is kind of any kind of oppression against women, it is sin, and let's call it sin. Yeah, we need not try to right every wrong. We need, not, we need not try to swing the pendulum all the way to the other side. Not that we're trying to find balance. We're trying to find what the Bible says concerning this leadership and the roles. To deny the distinctions between men and women, I believe, is to dishonor God as the creator. Turn with me to 1 Timothy, if you will, please. In 1 Timothy, we see a, a more detail concerning this issue. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. He says, a woman must quietly, in talking about church worship, the church gathering together and together, a church, a woman must receive, quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. You say, well, ah, and that's kind of harsh. It's not. You see, this is the fulfillment of God's created order. Look at the very next verse. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman who was deceived fell into transgression. What is he saying? Paul is not saying this is just my, you know, my view because I'm a chauvinist pig. I actually was went to Bible college, went to a prominent Christian university here in the United States, and and, and I had a professor that, and all my professors actually who had graduated and said, John, you're just a chauvinist. You're just like Paul, who was a chauvinist pig. Because you won't let, don't think women should be this. So we'll read the text. And you can't, you can't get around it. But why? It's not because he wants to hold women down. It's because in the created order with Adam and Eve, before there was sin in the world, before there was sin in the world, before there was anything, God had made it so that a man and a woman would be complementary to one another. The husband in the role of lead, and the woman would follow him. And it wasn't until sin entered that we had the destruction of those and the fighting between who would lead. And yet, for the church, God has said, let it be men who serve in this position. In Titus chapter 1, if you want to go back to that, if you will. Verse 6, he's going to say this. Namely, if any man is above reproach. It says man. He must be the husband of one wife. I know we have a lot of confusion today what a man and a woman is and what a husband and a wife is. There wasn't any confusion in Paul's day, or there may have been, but Paul wasn't confused at all. It has to be a man. I want to be very clear. This is not a holding down of women. This is not of saying that women are inferior, because they are not. 
They are absolutely what we call ontologically, they are equal. It's just God has different roles. This is fulfilled in your family, isn't it? This is fulfilled God's design for your family. There are things that women by nature do significantly better on a whole. And that's because that's the way God has created them. And that's the beauty of God's creation. Let me give you number four. Elders are leaders. I mean, some of these are so obvious, you go, why are you saying this? Because it needs to be said. Elders are leaders. We discussed those three terms in the New Testament that speak about the church. Remember the elders, the pastor shepherd, and the, elder, and the overseers. All three of those terms contain the idea of authority and leadership. They all do. You can't get around it. The New Testament makes it clear that elders are to lead. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, it says, But uh, in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Timothy, you've got to lead. You've got to lead. Even in verse 5, he says, But if a man does not know how to lead, the qualifications, a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Management. It's one of the qualifications of a, of a leader. First Timothy, or excuse me, First Peter, chapter five, verse three, Peter says, "Shepherd of the flock of God among you." Shepherds lead, right? Go read Psalm twenty-three of of God who led David. He said, "What does he do? The shepherd cares for me. He leads him to quiet waters. He leads him to the pastures of green pastures. That's what shepherds do." They, they're out front saying, follow me to Christ as I follow Christ. On the, on the reciprocating end of it, Hebrews tells us from, from the perspective of, of those who are in the flock and are not in leadership. In Hebrews 13, verse 7, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who give an account. Who are those leaders? Pastors, elders, overseers. Everyone is in need of leadership. Without leadership, there is confusion. There's ultimately destruction. And so a church needs godly leaders or it is hopelessly weak. It's confused for it knows not where it goes. Number five, elders are goal-oriented. Elders are goal-oriented. Those who aim at nothing, what? Hit nothing. If you're not aiming for something, you're not going to hit anything. And I'll be honest with you, there's much confusion over what an elder does. I mean, you go to any church, you say, well, and elders in our church, they or you know, they they are the ones who make sure that all of the building and the maintenance of the facilities are done. They kind of support the pastor to make sure that everything goes off without a hitch. Some churches think elders are there just to stay on a kind of be an advisory board when they're needed to the pastoral staff. 
Some think elders are there just to kind of be these old patriarchs that sit around and everybody needs to kind of bow in submission to them and you pay homage to them and that's about it. There's a plethora of things. Some think elders are just to be administrators. Well, they kind of take care of the administration of the church. Um, maybe you've got a, a private school attached to her, so the elders just kind of make sure everything's running smooth. They're CEOs. They're, they're kind of the command vessel. They make decisions, and then guess what? They let everybody else do all the, everything else. But that's not what the scriptures speak of concerning elders. Period. That is not their goal. Parts of those might be things that they need to do and accomplish because of their giftedness in the church. But that is not their ultimate goal. Their goal is what? What does the New Testament say? Have you ever thought about it? What is an elder, what's his ultimate goal as to, if you're an elder, to accomplish? Let me just say this. It's the maturing of the saints in Christ's likeness. Your only goal is to ensure that the people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, from the moment that they are converted to Christ, that they come to maturity, come to maturity in Christ, complete and lacking in nothing. Let me give you the two texts. First of all, let me just take you to Colossians chapter 1, if I may. Colossians chapter 1. This was Paul's goal. Colossians 1, 28. Great passage of philosophy of ministry. Paul says, we proclaim him. That's Christ. We're admonishing every man and teaching every man. One, we're, we're, we're correcting, we're admonishing. If you admonish someone, you're correcting them, and then you're teaching them the right way. That's called discipleship. So we're proclaiming Christ, we're admonishing and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that, hear that? That when you see the word so that, this is the reason why. This is the goal. So that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, I agonize, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. That's their goal. Not church administration. Not making sure that the posters are up or there's this or that done. Their primarily objective is the completion of maturity and Christ-likeness in every member. Ephesians chapter 4, if you will, to kind of build on that. Well, there is this mentality that you hire pastors and you have elders so they do all the work in the ministry, right? I mean, that's what we hire pastors for, to do the work. Well, i got to go to work for all work, week. Well, I'm going to challenge you a bit to think through that. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he says this. And he, that is Christ, Christ gave, who, Christ gave some, that is, gave them to the church, some as apostles and some as prophets. We know that those are now gone, Ephesians chapter 2.20, that when the foundation of the apostles and prophets is built, you don't keep building on the foundation. So now the apostles and prophets are done and over. He says he gave some as apostles and prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. The church, this is a gift. Godly pastors in your church is a gift. 
and teachers. Why? Verse 12. He gave them for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Get that? God puts pastors, elders, overseers, into a church, and he says, you teach, you train, you equip with knowledge of God's word, with teaching and admonishing these people so that they mature and they do the work of the ministry. It's not that pastors don't put sound equipment away. It's not the point. But his main objective as an elder is to equip those who are not equipped so they can do work of ministry. Well, what's the work of the ministry? Go out and preach the gospel. Go out and disciple others. Counsel others. So that they can go and minister one to another. So they can serve in the church in, in hundreds or thousands of different capacities in every way possible. The work of the ministry is for the membership. The building up and the equipping is to the leaders so that they function in that way. And that is their ministry in the church. I would encourage you to go back to Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 15. Look what happens in verse 14. When this happens, when you get this philosophy of ministry, that pastors, elders are there to do, to do the equipping, primarily through teaching and exhorting and, and challenging and, and admonishing and teaching, what happens? The result, as a result, we, the church, are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. We become what? A formidable force in the world. We become mature in Christ. When pastors and elders spend all of their time making decisions on building projects, budget stuff, this and that. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be equipping people for ministry. That's their primary goal. It's not that they don't do other things. But that is the primary responsibility of an elder. Elders are goal-oriented. And by goal-oriented, they know that goal. They know their purpose. And they not, don't let other things get in the way. I'll give you another one, quickly. Elders are smelly. I said that correctly. Some of you looked at me like, what in the world? Elders stink. They do. Now you're wondering where I'm going with that, aren't you? Elders stink. The reason I say that is because sheep stink. Don't they? You ever been around sheep? Especially long, woolly ones that haven't been sheared yet. They got all that oily lanolin all over them. And it's collected stink and sweat, especially if you get them and you haven't, they haven't been sheared quite early enough. They get a really foul odor to them. I hate to say it, but they even have manure that's attached to their 
hair and it stinks. Have your kid go mutton busting. You guys know what that is? You guys know what that is? You don't know what mutton busting is? We're going to teach you some things. In rodeos, kids can't go rodeoing, so they take sheep and they let kids ride sheep and they start bucking like bucking animals do, okay? That's how long the kid can hold on. It's called mutton busting. We're going to have a fun day doing it someday, okay? Kid reaches on, they got to put the helmet on and they grab into that long old hair. And you know what? When you go out to pick up your kid, because they usually only last from about here to that speaker, okay? And you pick up your kid, that kid has a foul odor. Sheep stink. Isn't it interesting that God calls us sheep? We're stink, don't we? There's a lot of sin. There's a lot of filthiness in our lives. And but you know what? An elder needs to stink too. But his stink is not because he's ungodly. His stink is because he's been with the sheep. He doesn't sit in an ivory tower. He doesn't sit in an office. He does sit in an office, and he better sit there long enough so that he knows what God's word says. But at some point, he has to be with the sheep. They have to be in his home. He has to be in their home. He has to know what's going on in their life. He has to be intimately acquainted with every way. That's what the good shepherd in Psalm 23 always did, didn't it? He led them by, by the waters. The shepherd didn't, in the, in the, in the New Testament, Old Testament as well, he, he didn't go out and just say, hey, I'll build a big old corral, keep them in there, and twice a day I'll go by and just kind of give them a quick visual. That's how we run cows now. Sheep. No, you would do what? You'd have a staff, you'd have some whatever, and he'd go out and he would live with them. He lived his life with sheep. Well, shepherds have to walk among the sheep. They have to touch them. They have to feed them. They have to care for them. And you know what? They have to, he has to oftentimes go rescue them. And to rescue them, he doesn't just lower a rope down and say, grab on. What does he got to do? He's got to go down there. And he's got to tie the sheep around his neck. And he's got to pull them back up and carry them out of the hole and put them back on their feet. And as a result, he begins to smell like them. You can't, you can't really hardly tell the difference between the shepherd and the sheep, other than, you know what, the sheep, when the shepherd walks, they all follow him, wherever he goes, because they know him to be a good shepherd. It's really an analogy. If you ever have a chance, I spent two trips to New Zealand, about a total of six months, New Zealand is, the, is the, the country with 3 million people and like 160 million sheep. There's sheep everywhere. And there's these guys out there, and you know what? They go work sheep, and they, at the end of the day, they smell like it. You go, go find a good cattleman. Okay? Here, I guess a farmer, a cow farmer. And if he's been working with his cows, he smells like them. Doesn't mean that he becomes... Inundated with their sin. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you can tell he's been with the sheep. And you can tell he loves the sheep. Because that's all he can think about. Is being with the sheep and making sure they're okay. And they're rescued and they're fed and they're watered. Nothing else gets in his way. As we read John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But he doesn't just lay down his life for the sheep. What did Christ do? He walked with the sheep. He shepherded his sheep while he was here. He lived life with them. We, we've been going through the gospel, Mark. Isn't it astounding? We're only like in one day. And you know how much happened in one day of the life of Jesus? He couldn't get away from the people. They just followed him wherever he went. You know what? He never complained about it. He was saddened by how much they needed him. And he ministered. 
All that to say, elders get their hands dirty when a brother in Christ is discouraged or going through a battle or suffering. They jump in the sinking ship to rescue. There's someone's marriage has fallen on the rocks. They don't say, well, can we meet next week? They go over and they begin to get to work and teaching the Word of God. An elder sees a sheep straying, and what do they do? They gently go and bring them back to where they ought to be. They don't say, you know what, that's a pastor's job, or you need to go find some counselor. They don't. They say, I've got the Word of God, I know the Word of God, and I know what you need. There's a sense of urgency. They are compelled to shepherd sheep. That's what they are. They, there is. There's a sense of inadequacy, but you know what they do? Instead of fearing and saying, I'm inadequate to do this, what do they do? They prayerfully seek out the sheep to do whatever they can with the Word of God to fix it, to save it. I have more to say. We're going to say it next week, but... My friends, we're about to affirm several men to the office of elder in this church. It needs to be the right men. It needs to be the men whom God would want. Men who pastor. Men who shepherd. Men who see the care of the sheep as priority number one. Men who lead under the authority of Christ, the chief shepherd. According to his word, not according to the philosophies of the world, not according to some business model, not according to what they've seen work or maybe work, but according to what the scriptures say. Men who have one goal, your maturity in Christ. As we are about to affirm them, I'm going to ask you to pray. To pray. Just pray. Give time to praying that God would reveal the right men. Pray for wisdom. Pray for those men. Pray for this church. Because as the leaders go, what? The church goes. And pray this. That God would instill godly men. Because in the end, who they are will dictate where this church goes. Its impact in this community. And ultimately its impact on the kingdom of God. To the glory of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we come to a passage like this, and and there is a certain level of fear and trepidation to even read the words and to realize that you would call men, knowing that no man would ever perfectly attain to this office by qualification or by desire were it not for you working through your spirit and your word in a man's life to present him as while still sinful adequate to do the job God we look at the scriptures and we do we see men who are leaders and have failed over and over again and by your grace you build your church and this we rest in that it is Christ who builds his church, and that we are merely tools and instruments to that end. 
Father, we pray for this church and the weeks to come as they will affirm elders. We ask for your wisdom. We ask for your direction. We ask for you to identify clearly what we are to do. We pray these things for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.